When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What? I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Episode 14, The Rise and Fall of the Laodwaldings. Last time, we ended by talking about Osred and his death at the hands of the Picts in 716. I mentioned that this event marked the advent of a period of political instability in Northumbria, the main feature of which was the rise of dynasties other than the descendants of Athelfrith, to positions of preeminence in Northumbrian politics. In particular, the descendants of an obscure figure named Leodwald would become a dynastic family capable of producing successful kings of Northumbria, thus marking a shift in the destiny of the kingdom. This episode will focus on the rise and eventual fall of this family. First of all though, I should give you a quick warning. This episode, particularly in this earlier bit, will involve a lot of names and dates without very much detail, since there isn't all that much surviving detail in the sources. This is a perennial problem when we're dealing with Northumbria, since very little written evidence survived the arrival and eventual conquest of the Danes, but that's a topic we'll get to a a bit further down the road. For right now, back to the early 700s and the rise of the Laodwaldings. After Osred's death in 716, he was succeeded by Coenred, grandson of a man named Leodwald. The circumstances under which Coenred became king are obscure, but the brevity of his reign, 716 to 718, indicates that he may well have taken the opportunity of Osred's death at the hands of the invading Picts to take the throne through violence. Such would not be surprising given the rebellions that frequently arose in Northumbria upon the death of a king. Coenred was replaced in 718 by Osrich, who was certainly a descendant of Athelfrith, but by what father is unknown. Bede doesn't say very much about Osrich's reign, besides the fact that comets appeared at his death in 729, which were taken to be a bad omen for things to come. Upon his death, Osrich apparently chose Chaelwulf, brother of Coenred, as his heir, indicating that by this time, the Laodwaldings had become powerful enough that they could not be ignored or simply removed. Or possibly this just indicates that by this time the line of Athelfrith had run low on viable male members to assume the throne. It was also around this time 
that is the late 720s, that we see a key change in Northumbrian foreign policy. The Picts appear to have sought a more peaceful relationship with Coenred, Osrich and Cheolwulf. Bede alludes to a treaty being signed in the mid to late 720s, and by 731 this peace was still in effect. The reason for this change is unclear. It's possible that in 716 Osred was forced into reigniting war with the Picts through factions in the Northumbrian court, while Osrich shared Alfred's more peaceful aims. Or it may be that the rising power of the Laodwaldings forced Osrich to seek peace abroad to focus on maintaining peace at home. The reason whatever is not clear, but certainly the decline of the Athelfrithings must have been reassuring to Northumbria's neighbours, since it was that family who had so often sought to subjugate their northern neighbours. Getting back to Cheolwulf, he is notable particularly for his close relationship with the Venerable Bede. We know that the two discussed religion, since Cheolwulf seemingly had quite strong monastic interests. Bede also dedicated his ecclesiastical history to Cheolwulf, with the hope that it would teach him many good examples from the history of the English church. Bede also recommended Cheolwulf to Egbert, then Bishop of York, as an ally in ecclesiastical reform. This seems to have borne fruit, since it was during Cheolwulf's reign in 735 that York finally achieved archiepiscopal status. That is, the Bishop of York, Egbert, then became Archbishop of York, Egbert. This increase in status allowed the Archbishop of York to solve Northumbria's most pressing issue, which was that it had too few priests. Up until now, Canterbury had exerted control over Northumbria, and she was ill-equipped to respond to the needs of the Northern Church. Now that York had become an archbishopric, it was able to break up the kingdom's enormous diocese and increase the number of priests so that pastoral care could reach even the most remote villages. So Cheolwulf's reign is particularly notable for its religious elements, but this focus on religion shouldn't deceive us into thinking that his reign was somehow more peaceful than those of other Northumbrian kings. In fact, it quite clearly was not. In 731, for example, he was briefly deposed and forcibly tonsured, that is, forced to become a monk, before returning to the throne later in the same year. This also coincides with the appointment of his cousin Edgbert as Archbishop of York. The rise of Edgbert is potentially related, since it is very probable that Edgbert's rising star was part of a greater movement in the Laodwalding family to seize and tighten control on the reins of power. Chailwolf may well have been a thorn in their sides where this was concerned. We don't know if he ever married or had children, but his clear monastic interests may well suggest that he was celibate. Thus, it's easy to imagine that an ambitious family would seek to remove him and place a more fruitful man on the throne. For whatever reason, and we don't really know what the circumstances were, the forced abdication of 731 didn't last and Cheolwulf returned to the throne within the year. This second part of his reign, though, was apparently short-lived, and in 737 he willingly abdicated to live the life of a monk on Lindisfarne, where he died in 764, an age which suggests that he had been quite young when he succeeded Osrich. America. We are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. 
To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. When Cheowulf abdicated, he named his successor as his cousin Eadbert, brother of Archbishop Edgbert. Early in his reign, Eadbert seems to have faced strong opposition from some noble families who had their own ambitions on the throne. Little's known for certain, but early in Edbert's reign, there is a clear tendency for the sons of noble families to suddenly be executed for unknown reasons. Eärnwina, son of the failed usurper Eadwulf, was killed in 740. In 750, Offa, the last surviving son of King Aldfrith, was taken from his monastery at Lindisfarne and put to death, seemingly on Eadbert's orders. These political killings seem to have aroused little opposition, probably due to the fact that Eadbert's brother was archbishop. Together, the brothers occupied the two most powerful positions in the kingdom, meaning that they had the resources to maintain order even while removing potential rivals. Plus, it must be remembered that political violence and political killings were not exactly new in Northumbria, so it's probable that Eadbert's actions were not seen as particularly controversial or unexpected. Just as removing his rivals suggests a desire to centralise power in the hands of the Laird-Walding dynasty, so too the economic record of Eadbert's reign indicates a strong central authority and a booming economy. Eadbert's reign saw a resurgence in the minting of coins in Northumbria, coins which were emblazoned with the names of both Eadbert and Edgbert, indicating the extent to which the two were operating as a team. This economic centralisation also had the effect of drawing the ire of Pope Paul I, who wrote a letter to the brothers demanding that they return lands they had taken from the church. Seemingly, they were attempting to boost their own wealth by plundering ecclesiastical lands and selling them off to potential supporters. Eadbert also revived Northumbrian imperial ambitions. In 740, we're told that he went to war with the Picts. Why isn't especially clear, but Alex Wolfer suggested that it may have been related to the death of Eärnwina. After his failed coup in 705-706, Eärnwina's father, Eärdwulf, had been in exile among the Picts, and Wolf suggests that they may have attempted to place Eärnwina on the throne to have a friendly ruler in Northumbria. This is speculation, however, and may be undermined by the fact that after Eärnwina's death, Eadbert and the Pictish king, Engus, seem to have had quite an amicable relationship. From 750 on, they allied several times to raid the lands of the British kingdom of Altclut, better known by its later name of Strathclyde, which was based around the fort built on Dumbarton Rock, situated in the River Clyde. Eadbert's reign also saw a revival of hostilities with the Mercians. In 740, while he was off waging war against the Picts, Athelbald, the long-established and extremely powerful king of Mercia, took the opportunity to raid into Northumbria. This seems to have angered Eadbert, who in 756, after subduing the Britons of Old Clud, may well have travelled with his Pictish allies south to Newborough, a town just outside Lichfield, to repay Athelbald. The ensuing battle was a crushing defeat for the combined Northumbrian Pictish forces, and sent them fleeing back north. This defeat seems to have undermined Eadbert so much that in 758 he abdicated the throne in favour of his son Oswulf, and retired to a monastery in York where he died in 768. 
I said Eadbert abdicated because of the defeat, but really we don't know why he suddenly abdicated. Unlike Trailwolf, who seems to have been more of a theologian than a king, Eadbert seems to have been quite a capable king, overseeing an economic boom and several military victories. But by 758, he clearly felt that it was time to go. Or did he? Whether this was his own choice, or whether he was forced to abdicate is unclear. The fact that Oswulf was murdered by his own troops within a year of becoming king may suggest the trouble was brewing which forced Eadbert off the throne. One man in particular seems to have been involved in the death of Oswulf, and that man quickly capitalised on the power vacuum to have himself crowned king. Uniquely for this time, this man didn't seem to come from a family claiming descent from the semi-legendary founders of Benicia and Dera. Instead, he seems to have been the son of a man who was personally favoured by Eadbert. That man's name was Moll, and his son would go down in the records as the usurper Athelwald Moll who we'll talk about more in an upcoming episode. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. As always, I've been your host, Tom Kearns. If you enjoyed this podcast, I would like to request that you leave a like or a positive review or whatever it is on whatever platform you use, since it really helps us to get exposure and attract more listeners. We also now have a Facebook page, so if you search for us on Facebook, and if you want to get updates on new episodes, you can always leave a like there, which would also be extremely appreciated. But that's all for this week. So, once again, thank you for listening, and I've been your host, Tom Kearns. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.